Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 20. The Great Divorce, Chapter 13. The Dwarf and the Tragedian. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We're currently in Season 2 and unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name's David, and today... <laughs> Your name is Matt. <laughs> My name is Matt. <laughs> the best part about this, listeners, is, is I'm like not as prepared as I have been in previous episodes. So Because despite what you might guess, he actually had been prepared for previous episodes. <laughs> But so my name is Matt, and I am joined by my co-host David, who always keeps me accountable in everything. This is true. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, 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 uh, so I have a Twitter that I go on from time to time for investment managers. There's actually one in particular who has a really incredible, so every like week I'll go through, and he actually does some really great economic stuff. Well, anyways, I made my way over to... Uh, the Pints with Jack Twitter page. And I saw David put something about me on there recently of of incredible... You had some words. I can't remember what the tweet was because I just glanced at it. I was doing the editing and I was playing Matt Bingo while I was doing it. <laughs> every every time you use the word incredible, I got to have another sip of my drink. <laughs> well, incredible is, incredible is one that I use all the time. There's got to be something, though, if I were editing, I'd be able to pull out with you. I feel like it's unfair. It's unfair that I do the editing. All right. You, you wield so much power. Matt just volunteered. <laughs> you wield so much power over me. I make you sound good. That you do do. <laughs> Except when you throw in David Copperfield references, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. For any previous person who doesn't get that, it's really funny. Go back and listen to all of the season one and eventually you'll find it. Yeah, I think that was your, your shining moment. I was. So what's the quote of the week? The quote of the week is this. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else, forever and ever, the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. So there's a lot there, and that's a great choice. Sometimes I tell you I would have chose a different one. This was a good one. Give us in one sentence what you think that's saying. Because a listener, sometimes it's you're driving and it goes over your head. This is big. I would say this is really explaining why there is a hell. The sickness has to be quarantined. In order for there to be a heaven, those who would seek misery and seek to share it with others, that needs to be contained. And what are you drinking this week? So I bought a few drinks last week. I told you about the Johnny Walker stuff. I didn't realize Red Label is their bad one. And so I'm drinking Johnny Walker Red Label. I was listening, re-listening to our podcast today when you released it. And I was like, oh, shoot, I, have, I bought some of the Red Label. And you said, that's the bad one. I, I'm not a huge fan. It's not bad. I'm, I'm just not a huge fan. <laughs> well, what are you drinking? I am drinking the Talisker 10-year. You might recall when I first drank this, it was just after a wedding. I'd been singing in the choir for some friends of mine, uh, Vlad and Yana. And they took very seriously the command to uh, be fruitful and multiply, and their child should be entering the world fairly shortly. So, uh, cheers to them. Cheers. Cheers. What are your thoughts? 
Okay, that's that's definitely a little harsher than the black label was. Yeah, and definitely than Macallan is. It, it'll it'll wake you up. Yeah, it will, and it leaves a bit of a burn on your tongue. <laughs> well, the Talisker is delightful. You know, I have to say before we jump in here, I've got to say as I was listening to the most recent episode we did, I was somewhat chuckling. Did you intentionally line it up that I made the reference about Casey and Nick in Nick's comment that at usually about eight minutes is what our pre-chat was? And it was like eight minutes and 30 seconds is when it was at exactly eight minutes that I actually made that comment as we were finishing up our pre-chat. No, that's just typically how it works out. We are actually surprisingly consistent as to how long we talk in the opening chit-chat. Well, for any listeners, that's completely unplanned. We're just that good. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And those listeners who follow us on Twitter and Instagram will know that Matt and I are now both registered for the C.S. Lewis International Symposium in North Carolina. And if any listeners are going there too, please let us know. We would love to hang out. Oh, that would be so much fun if anyone did. Because you and I aren't good enough polls, how about you name drop some of the people that will be there because we're not going to be good enough to get anyone to go. (laughs) <laughs> oh, they're going to be so many great people. Um, there's Dr. Don King, uh, Douglas Gresham, so C.S. Lewis's stepson. He's going to be there. He's fantastic. And we're going to become best friends. I'm just making a prediction now. Yep, of course. Uh, Dr. David Downing is going to be there, as well as Dr. Diana Glyer. Oh, ooh, and both of the guys from the Lamppost Listener are going to be there. Oh, we should do a group recording session. Absolutely. I will, I will make that happen. <laughs> oh, this is a great idea. I'm really excited for this. And Patty Callahan should be there as well. Oh, I've wanted to meet her in person because when David does these recordings for the podcast and we do interviews, I've done one now too. It hasn't been released yet, but we do it over Skype. And so we actually have a video recording. So I watched their actual video recording. She is the sweetest person. Just watching her mannerisms, her body language as she's talking to you. She's so engaging, so inviting. She reminds you of Lewis, where when Douglas Gresham describes Lewis as very charitable with his time, you can tell the person's present. And Patty seems very present. Well, she was exceptionally charitable since she was actually feeling rather under the weather when we recorded. That's her under the weather? Oh my goodness, I only imagine how sweet she is when she's not under the weather. Ooh, I've thought of another motivation for people to come and hang out with us. I assume it's not a dry campus. This might change, but I'm planning on bringing a bottle of Vat 69, which was Lewis's favorite scotch. We should do something where if we get four people to come, plus the two lampposts, plus us, that's eight of us, we do a mini party. (laughs) I'm not joking here. Okay, well, we can at least uh, travel around the campus trying to find hidden worlds in various wardrobes. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. It's a scavenger hunt for the wardrobe that leads to Narnia. (laughs) Although we can't be looking for it for it to happen. This is true. Yeah. Very yeah. true. Yeah, you like that reference? You're welcome. I, I did. I did. I did. Um, and actually, we had a, a lovely message on Reddit from a listener. Maybe a listener who loves us enough to want to come to a, a symposium with us. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, the user is behind the catchy name of RSS1179. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he or she wrote, really loving the Pints with Jack podcast. I'm going back and listening more intentionally. I'm looking forward to a new book that I can read along with in real time each week. With that said, I'm hoping you guys continue for a very long time. Have you received any, uh, anything from my mother yet? No. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, we should do a really quick one last cheers also. 
before we jump into this, to Jeff, who we, you put the Instagram post. He's one of our listeners. He came back out to New York. Him and I got the most incredible tour of the USS New York. He took me behind the scenes. I sat in a captain's chair. <laughs> it was an awesome time. So we're going we're gonna to do, uh, do a cheers to Jeff and a thank you. And that's it. <laughs> like Captain Kirk, may you go boldly wherever you go. <laughs> Always, David. Cheers. Cheers. What everyone's been waiting for. The summary. Cue that music. The tragedian tells the lady that she is driving him back to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody didn't read this before. (laughs) (laughs) The tragedian tells the lady that she's driving him back to hell, despite her telling him that everybody bids you stay. The lady pleads, stop acting, he is killing you, let go of the chain, stop using other people's pity in the wrong way. The dwarf gradually shrinks and disappears entirely. The tragedian also soon after vanishes. The lady returns to her retinue, who begin to sing. Lewis is troubled by this, but MacDonald asks if he would prefer it if he still had the power of tormenting her. Either the day must come when joy prevails, or the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. It is now that Lewis discovers the smallness of hell. He also asks MacDonald about his universalist beliefs, but MacDonald tells him he asks what cannot be answered to mortal ears. There's a lot in there, David. Well done. Thank you. And even a French word. Yeah, you made me sound smart there for a second. Written new. Like I said, it's what I do. You like that I was able to pronounce that? Yes, and you did that absolutely on the first take, and we didn't re-record it. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let's do a bit of a recap, because today's chapter is really a continuation from last week. The previous chapter mostly focused on the great lady. Lewis initially sees this greatly honored lady in heaven and assumes that she's the Virgin Mary. However, she was an unknown, an unlauded saint named Sarah Smith. Which does make one wonder, I thought, if this is how someone like Sarah Smith is revered in heaven, what must it be like in relation to the only woman in history who gave birth to the God-man? Remember I said that last episode that I'm actually glad it wasn't the Virgin Mary because as much as it was an incredibly... Dang, now I'm going to think incredibly every time. As much <laughs> as it was a beautiful description. I, I'm, I'm taking a sip, listeners. Every time now, now when Matt says incredible, I'm taking a drink. You want to commit to that? Because <laughs> this is going to be really a fun episode. Uh, as much as I thought it was beautiful, I was glad because I would expect more if it was a virgin, Mary. I would expect a lot more. And Lewis had some trouble with at least the Catholic and Orthodox veneration of Mary. So I actually do wonder what he would have done if he had tried that, but I'm with you. I I think this is way better. So that was the last chapter. This chapter turns the spotlight on her ghostly husband. You'll remember he's represented by two ghosts, a ghostly dwarf holding a chain around a much taller ghost, whom Lewis calls the tragedian, and he represents his overly dramatic full self. Now, we left the last chapter on something of a cliffhanger. You'll recall that it looked like she was managing to sway the dwarf, that things were going to work out well. Didn't I have a pessimistic view of what the outcome was going to be? You did. And Lewis opens this chapter with one of the saddest lines in the entire book. He writes, 
I do not know that I ever saw anything more terrible than the struggle of that dwarf ghost against joy. In this chapter, Sarah, his wife, battles for her husband's soul. I've probably mentioned Brene Brown before, but she talks so much about the role that shame plays in preventing us from being able to experience joy. If you have a deep amount of shame, you don't feel worthy of joy. You don't let yourself feel it because you think something's going to pull it away down the road anyways. And so it's better to not feel it at all. It's a really sad state that people actually get into. And so we get to witness it here. David will put a link in the show notes to her TED Talk, the most, one of the most famous TED Talks of all time. It'll give you a 20-minute teaser of her incredible... Dang it. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking again. (laughs) Drinking again. (laughs) Of her remarkable work on vulnerability and shame. Okay, so back (laughs) to the book. Lewis says that Sarah, the dwarf's wife, she's looking at him lovingly, and the dwarf starts to be swayed, and he briefly sees the absurdity of the tragedian, his false self. But despite this gracious invitation... His pride surges once more, and Lewis tells us that the dwarf never speaks again. Instead, he just tugs on his chain, and the tragedian delivers an indignant speech. He says, It is fortunate that you give yourself no concern about my fate. Otherwise, you might be sorry afterwards to think that you had driven me back to hell. I'm fairly quick at recognizing when I'm not wanted. Uh, Not needed was the exact expression, if I remember rightly. We always come back to that need, need love. Mm. And although at the end of the previous chapter, Lewis said that he thought that the dwarf was perhaps growing more solid and growing in size, he says that the dwarf now visibly begins to shrink. Naturally, his wife pushes back on this and she tells him to send the tragedian away. And she said, here in heaven is joy. Everything bids you stay. Despite what the tragedian said about her driving him back to hell. And the tragedian says, you know, you're inviting me to stay, but on terms you might offer to a dog. I happen to have some self-respect left. And I think what he really means here is he's got some pride. There you go. And as we've seen this entire book, ego, ego, ego. And when you realize that's the number one thing keeping you from heaven, you start thinking to yourself, I find myself going to confession quite frequently for ego-related stuff. It's amazing how much now because of the great divorce, I go, wow, there's my ego. Ooh, there's my ego. This book has just brought that to the forefront. And now that I realize it could be the one thing that keeps me from saying yes to heaven, I'm scared of my ego. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems ridiculous when we see this in the tragedian. Uh, you know, he's such a drama queen. He says, uh, I see that my going will make no difference to you. It is nothing to you that I go back to the cold and the gloom and the lonely, lonely streets. <laughs> David, in another life, you could have been in theater. <laughs> my mom actually tried to get me into theater because my sister really loved it, but... Wasn't for me at the time. Sarah tells her husband not to talk like that. And Lewis says that the tragedian catches these words greedily as a dog catches a bone. In triumph, he says, oh, you are always that way. You must be sheltered. Grim realities must be kept out of your sight. You don't want to hear about my sufferings. You say, don't. Don't make you unhappy. Don't, don't break you out of your sheltered, self-centered little heaven. And all the while he's saying this, the dwarf is just getting smaller and smaller. Wow. Your sheltered, self-centered heaven. What a picture. We've already talked about, you said that first sentence, fighting against joy. She's, she's offering him immense amounts of joy. 
I caught myself with incredible. <laughs> I'm proud of that one. <laughs> so I had to say it. Immense amounts of joy. And he can call something as beautiful, this picture that we've seen painted of this woman who loves him, talks to him in such a compassionate way, calls him dear. Your sheltered, self-centered little heaven. He has to turn it on her. It's unbelievable. Because he wants it to be about himself. Yes. He's, he's invited in and he's, he's trying to find reasons for rejecting it because it's not on his terms. Uh-huh. And, and this is what Sarah explains. She says, that, that's not what I meant. I meant stop acting. It's no good. He is killing you. The tragedian. Let go of that chain. And I actually think those are telling words. That he is killing you. Let go of the chain. Because the way that it's visually set up is that the dwarf is leading the tragedian. The dwarf is in control of the tragedian. But what Sarah is communicating is that thing is killing you. You are the thing that's chained, not the tragedian. I've mentioned a couple times that spiritual retreat I've been going on in Chicago, but we've mentioned the false self, true self. I'll never forget this. Uh, an individual had shared a bit of his journey struggling with the false self, and he used this word that he now catches himself in conversations, posturing. I think mm. of acting in a way, but that, that false self, that tragedian self, if you want to connect it to this, postures all the time. And now I've noticed myself. I've been in conversations with people, and I leave and I go, Wow, I just postured a ton there. And then I ask myself, what does that say about me? If I can't just go in there and be present, if I have to posture of what's been going on in my life in a way that just is boosting my false self. Yeah, we often hide it under the guise of, oh, I'm just letting people know what I'm doing in my life. Whereas what I'm really doing is I'm listing all of my recent achievements. Yes, that's exactly what I was doing. I was like, holy cow. I actually came home and I'm, I'm thinking this was just in the last couple of weeks. Like, what? is wrong with me, <laughs> is what I thought. And now in the dialogue, we come to the issue of pity. The great lady tells her husband to stop using pity, other people's pity, in the wrong way. She says that the point of pity is that it's meant to, it's meant to be the spur that drives joy to help misery. But she says that he's using it as a form of blackmail. And since in heaven there are no secrets, she tells him that when he was a child, he did the same thing then. When he got in trouble, rather than simply saying sorry, he went and sulked in the attic until one of his sisters would take pity on him. As I was reading that, I was thinking back to my own childhood, and my most common apology time was usually bedtime. And I was thinking through it, and I realized my mother actually always made me say the words, I'm sorry. I wouldn't simply just be pitiful and mum would say everything is fine. She would want me to say, I'm sorry, and then immediately I would be forgiven. But it would always come to that place that I had to recognize that what I had done was not right. And I was a nasty little boy, so that was always true. I could see being difficult. <laughs> well, I mean that. I actually mean it in somewhat of a more of a complimentary way. I regularly berated my mother for not preparing her notes for the podcast. <laughs> I was thinking, though, have you ever heard they use the term precocious for more yep. adult light and touch? I can see mm. being very precocious. Oh, yeah, and then some. Uh-huh. That, that sounds about right. So she's identified the real issue with her husband, the fact that he uses pity as a weapon. And she says that that's not going to work here. She says that her joy cannot be shaken. Our light can swallow up your darkness, but your darkness cannot now infect our light. Can you really have thought that love and joy would always be at the mercy of frowns and sighs? Did you not know they were stronger than their opposites? 
At this point, were you not feeling a resistance actually to the way she was talking to him? Essentially telling him he weaponized pity. And I was finding it interesting because my first thought would be like, you know, if someone was speaking that way to me too, I would be getting pretty defensive. Like I would be a lot gentler if I were her. To then later in this chapter essentially be told I'm wrong with that because that's actually me pitying the person and being actually held hostage. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you on all of that. Part of me thinks it's like, oof, I wouldn't say, hey, this is your deep fundamental flaw and you've been doing this ever since you were a child. Yes, that's what I was thinking. But at the same time, it's worth noting that he is immune to her words while he is still doing this. I can see the sense in he needs to be able to recognize what he's doing because he might not even really recognize it. If he has been doing this ever since he was a child, this is just his way of operating. And we're going to see later and come across this, but he is going to essentially describe the feeling that we have of being kinder or using this language, like pity the person more and be a bit gentle is the wrong approach to it. Like exactly like you said, this is exactly what the dwarf needs to hear. And so Lewis essentially critiqued my way of thinking two pages later. So by this point, the dwarf and the chain have completely disappeared. Earlier, MacDonald, he had spoken about the difference between a woman who is a grumbler and a woman who has just become a grumble. And I think here we actually see that visually play out. Sarah's husband is gone. He's basically nothing now. And all that remains is the tragedian. And this is the first time that Sarah actually addresses him. She says, where's Frank? And who are you, sir? I never knew you. Did you get the sense that she was being coy? Or did she genuinely never see the tragedian? Even though, because we get a very picture that he's very present in there. Now we get for the first time this sense, I almost see a sarcasm. Who are you? As if he's never been there. Hmm. I kind of want to say both. <laughs> okay. I mean, she's mentioned that great ugly doll before. So she's referenced the tragedian. So she knows that he's present. But when all that was left of her husband has disappeared, and now this is all that remains, I think she is somewhat shocked by it. And she does express the truth. She never knew him because he's not a real person. Since she's been in heaven, she has only seen her husband and who he really is. And as you mentioned in the previous episode, she just sees right past all of the posturing. Maybe it's like when Jesus says, you get to heaven, and he goes, I don't know you. I had that exact note. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. Yeah, when, when people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these great things in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Because all that they described was a posturing. It wasn't something that was rooted in a relationship with him. And we see this play out to its completion because the dwarf is completely gone and now the tragedian starts to fade. And he says, you do not love me. And Sarah responds, I cannot love a lie because that's what the tragedian is. She says, I cannot love the thing which is not. I am in love and out of it I will not go. And for listeners, in love, not like lowercase l. She is in capital L itself, capital L love in God. And then the tragedian vanishes, and then the great lady stands up and walks back to her party and is greeted by the bright spirits who come singing another one of Lewis's re-renderings of the Psalms. It's actually Psalm 91. And the first time I read this book, this was the one that I identified as a psalm by myself because this is a psalm that we pray in night prayer, if anyone follows the Liturgy of the Hours. Have you, have you done the Liturgy of the Hours? Like, is a routine thing? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, wow. You recommend it? Oh, absolutely. And Marie and I pray it every night, either on the phone or 
if we're if we're around because it's meant to be prayed in community you can do it by yourself but it's much more fun doing it with somebody else david you continue to surprise me yeah. <laughs> what, what a good boyfriend i'm the best although having said that just before we came on the call she brought me brunch oh we we got back from church and as i was setting up my stuff she went to the kitchen and whipped up some eggs and potatoes and so she's uh she's a pretty great girlfriend too <laughs> notice that David, when he talked about himself, I'm the best. When he talks about her, she's pretty great. <laughs> anyway. I want to edit that one out before Marie hears it. Anyway, uh, bring it back. We, we should point out with this psalm, though, this, this, the top line of this song is, it's incredible to me. I don't know what you want to speak oh, about it, but. Drink. The happy, drink. Oh, drink. Oh, another incredible. Shoot. <laughs> The happy trinity is her home. Nothing can trouble her joy. Connect that to theosis, everyone. As we go back to that divinization, deification, whatever term you want to use, theosis, becoming a new man, that is about entering into the Trinitarian life. And Lewis has talked about that good infection, being close to it. Here it talks about how that joy goes into you. You cannot be rocked. You cannot be troubled. You want to know what is the gift, the offer of Christianity? Yes, forgiveness of sins is part of it. It's so much more than that. It's a life where you can be this person that arrows hit you, negativity hits you, and your joy can't be rocked. I, and I read this, and I speak this, and I think to myself, gosh, I'm so far from this. I've got quite a ways to go. But it's a beautiful call to, to know that it's not just saying yes to Jesus. It's not just having your sins forgiven. That's great. But as you've said before, David, he will make you perfect. And when you're perfect, you'll be in that happy trinity, and it will be your home. I mean, that to me, holy cow, I can't stress this enough. The Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I be afraid? Yes, I just wanted to use the word incredible, that whole monologue I just gave. <laughs> I'm, I'm counting that one. <laughs> and now you are out of your drink. <laughs> no, no, no. The bottle's here. <laughs> bottle's here. So Lewis and MacDonald then discuss everything that they've just seen. And Lewis asks if it's really tolerable that the great lady should be so untouched by her husband's misery, even if it was his self-made misery. And MacDonald handles him really well here. He does the right thing in response. He leads with a question. He says, Would you rather that he still had power of tormenting her? He did it many a day and many a year in their earthly life. And Lewis admits, well, no, he wouldn't want that. But he's still uneasy. And he articulates the argument which those who are against the doctrine of hell often raise. And it's this idea that if there's even a single soul in hell, that undermines the joy of those in heaven. Listeners, David's quite intelligent, and so I'm going to put him on the spot here <laughs> to push on the harder doctrine, I guess. And this is actually a genuine thought I have right now, and I'm curious your answer. But if, if God is so powerful, I know he can't go against free will, of course, and that's why people can still reject him and go to hell. But if he's so smart and he's all powerful, doesn't he know the exact thing David needs to hear in theory? Like, couldn't he, I know he can't force David to accept him and come to heaven. I get that. But he's all knowing. Can't he be like, you know what? This is what I need to put in David's life to win him to me. I think you'll still keep butting up against the idea of free will. If I have free will, I can still always say no. Uh, I can lavish a, a lady with, flowers and chocolates and promise of the world, but she can still ultimately turn me down. I mean, 
Obviously, this has never, ever happened. But, you know, in theory, that's possible. I guess you're right. I can answer it myself now, too. I still sin. I still screw up. I still, and whenever you're sinning, you're choosing something other than heaven in that moment. And yet I believe Jesus died for me. And so mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, could, could God have done anything more than that? Like, that is the ultimate wooing, to give your only son for us. And as I think one of the saints said, he would have gave his only son even if there was only one of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the most extreme act of love, and it still hasn't won me completely. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would zoom in on that. Just think of those moments when you have knowingly sinned. Your conscience has told you this is the right thing to do. Yes. And you went and did the other thing. Yes. If I had asked you, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Christ? Etc. Etc. I'm pretty sure you'd affirmed all of those. Yet you still chose differently. I've been wrestling with this. Uh, if I'm wrestling with this, other listeners will be. And so I'm going to ask you this too and push one step further. If I then consciously choose to sin, could that suggest I don't fully believe? Because I'm not living up to the way that I fully want to live in certain areas of my life. And I think to myself, and partly even something I've been thinking of, I went to confession recently about just not feeling a ton of joy uh, and for a period of time. And I think to myself, I'm supposed to be experiencing an incredible amount of joy. That's the gift of God. And does this mean I don't actually believe? Because it's, it's essentially because of stress from work lately. And that's been just getting me down. If I believe in God, truly, I should have no stress. I should be at peace. His will will be done. Absolutely. And if I just submit to that, but clearly I don't. Well, I think the main thing I'd say is that you're not alone because St. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans in chapter seven, he said, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do for I have the desire to do good, but I cannot carry it out for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do this. I keep doing. Hmm. Basically, Paul is fighting against the flesh. You know, we have three great enemies in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are in a battle. And that means that we have to fight. I mean, you you read Paul's letters, he's very often joyful in suffering. But at the same time, he is still suffering. That doesn't mean that he's tiptoeing through the tulips. But he knows that his Redeemer lives. Think back to the Screwtape letters. My favorite part of the Screwtape letters is when Screwtape talks about the law of undulation. Mm. That basically our natural disposition, we go up, we go down, we go up, we go down. The difference is, is that what God wants from us is our will. I actually believe I see in my life that it's in the down times that I come closer to God. Do you think if I didn't fall from him or if I said yes more in the up times that he wouldn't give me the down times? I'm almost trying to say there's somewhat of a self-affliction. But if my will did align without the undulation, he would probably let it pass. Sometimes I think that too. I'm going to offer a very stern warning against that kind of thinking because it's actually, you follow that, that line of thinking, you end up with the nonsense like the prosperity gospel. That's true. Which is that if there's any bad thing in my life, it's because I'm not faithful enough. That's true. That does lead to that. And that's bad. Just for any listener, why is that bad? Just so, I mean, I agree it is, but as a listener. Because it's not true. <laughs> you look at the life of Christ, you look at the life of the apostles, you look at the lives of the great that's leaders great, of the early church. Oh, right, yep. These are not people who led lives that were free of, of stress and striving and difficulty. But like St. Paul, they said that we know how to endure all things. It's through Christ. Your example of Jesus was the perfect one. There's no way you can deny that his will was not aligned with God's will and suffering still came. 
and there's the di- there's a the disconnect right there. And in the Screwtape letters, through the voice of Screwtape, Lewis actually says that God even, he tends to draw away from his favorites. <laughs> and even in the epistle of James, it opens up in chapter one, and it talks about uh, that the adversities that we face will strengthen our faith. Okay. That it's through these times that we actually grow the greatest. When we're going through tough times, we, we certainly can become better people. It'll either completely scupper us, or we'll come out all the stronger. That was great. I'm glad we went on that tangent. I hope listeners, you guys appreciated that. Well, in that case, let's bring it back to Lewis and his, his own struggle in the book. This idea that, well, if there's even a single soul in hell, surely that undermines the joy of those in heaven. MacDonald offers a very gentle rebuke. He says that sounds very merciful, but there's something lurking behind it. He says that behind that nice idea is the demand that the loveless and the self-imprisoned should be allowed to blackmail the universe. That until they consent to be happy and on their own terms, no one else will taste joy. And he says that, that theirs should be the final power. Well, then that means that hell gets to veto heaven. And I'd go further. I'd say there is no heaven while hell can still do that. Wow. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because it would be taking away the entire joy of heaven, and that is heaven. Exactly. And I remember when I first read this book, that line there, it was like a thunderclap. (laughs) It articulates really clearly why there needs to be a hell, to quarantine that sin and that misery. Self-inflicted. Yeah. Not God-inflicted. It's like if you're throwing a party and you have a a roommate that doesn't want to join, you would at least prefer them to be in their room (laughs) rather than in the party ruining it for everyone. But if they were willing to let go of their ego and come join, of course, you would mercifully in a second, if they said, David, I would love to come and join this party, you would let them in. Exactly. We just started playing Twister. Get in there. (laughs) Another great analogy, David. And McDonald unpacks this idea a little bit more, and I'm going to quote a little bit more of it. And this is actually the quote of the week, uh, because this is really what I needed to hear when I was struggling with this idea. McDonald says that, Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness that they reject for themselves. He says, I know it sounds grand to say that you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside. He says, but watch that sophistry, watch that clever language or you'll make a dog in a manger the tyrant of the universe. Wow, dog in a manger. Now, I'm really proud about this because over this past season, I've been reading a bunch of different books. And one of the ones that I read was Aesop's Fables. And I got so excited when I recognized the phrase that Lewis uses here, this dog in a manger. For those of you who haven't read Aesop's Fables before, they're fairly short stories that are morality tales. And in one of them, Aesop speaks about a dog who lies down in a manger. Now, he doesn't want to eat the grain. It's not the kind of food that he likes. But nevertheless, he prevents all the horses from being able to eat it either. The story is about someone who will spitefully prevent others from having something which they themselves don't actually even want. Is it a coincidence that dog... I've never read these, but obviously dog is God backwards. (laughs) I'm not kidding. God in a manger, dog in a manger. That seems way too coincidental. And you could even go further because... Jesus is the bread of life. He's born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He is lain in a manger, and he offers himself to us as food. And a dog in a manger is the complete reverse of that. 
<laughs> I can't tell if you're making fun of me because this was blatantly <laughs> known or if, if this was... <laughs> uh, I hadn't thought of the connection, but okay, sure. Okay, good, good. So you didn't think of the connection. I didn't. You have, a, you have a good job still making me feel like I'm the only one in this, this listening to this that I'm talking that didn't nail that connection. <laughs> no, I hadn't thought of that. Good job. <laughs> I just went from an extreme feeling of shame to pride. Well... Let's talk about pity then, Uh, because Lewis really struggles with the idea that pity should ever die. That's that's really what's behind his his objection here. And MacDonald distinguishes between two kinds of pity, the passion of pity and the action of pity. Now, I'm actually going to go on records. I don't quite like either of these phrases, but I really like what he's expressing. So what he refers to as the passion of pity is the ache that draws men to concede what shouldn't be conceded where they flatter when they should speak the truth it's i think it's the idea it's the desire within us when we want to make other people just happy whatever we have to compromise he actually even says that good women have been cheated out of their virginity through this way and many statesmen out of their honesty and he says bad men use this as a weapon against good ones but he says that this kind of pity this passion of pity this is not going to last it's not going to last into eternity he says the weapon will be broken And he contrasts that with the action of pity. And he says, this is the kind of pity which leaps quicker than light from the highest place to the lowest to bring healing and joy, whatever the cost to itself. It changes darkness into light and evil into good. And unlike this other kind of pity, this action of pity, he says, this will last forever. However, it's not going to impose itself on the unwilling and it's not going to be manipulated by evil. This was such a good picture of grace and mercy. He uses the word, it leaps leaps like that's just a quick instantaneous leaps quicker than light from the highest place to the lowest to bring healing if you cry out for help throw your hands up in that extreme act of faith all of heaven and god himself will leap to your side instantaneously now as we've talked about with time it might not be at your time it might take some time for it to play out for God to, to work through this. So don't think you just throw your hands up and it's a magic wand. I had a priest tell me that after I did an Ovina and it seemed like things got worse. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, it's not a magic recipe. <laughs> but anyways, but definitely submit yourself to God there. He will help cure that disease. But you do have to recognize that it needs a cure. McDonald says, we're not going to call blue yellow just to please those who insist on having jaundice. <laughs> I missed that my first read. And then it's time for Jack to return to the question that had bothered him ever since he had met the hard bitten ghost back in chapter 7. Why don't these bright spirits, why don't these saints go and fetch the souls from hell? MacDonald kneels down and he points to a tiny crack in the ground using a blade of grass as a pointer. And he says that when the bus travelled to heaven, it came through a crack which was no bigger. He says that the journey on the bus was not mere locomotion. Not only were they moving through space, they were also growing as they traveled to heaven. It's amazing how it's infinite and it can be infinitely small. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that this seemingly infinitely huge town resides in a minuscule crack of heaven. Mm -hmm. And while it seems huge while you're in it, MacDonald explains that all the hatred of hell wouldn't even register in the balance. If it was placed against even the smallest moment of joy in heaven, it would be like a drop in the ocean. And since hell is tiny, Lewis reaches the conclusion that, well, none of these bright spirits could fit into hell. And MacDonald gives this chilling diagnosis about those who stay there. Uh, What was the Latin phrase, Matt? 
Incavatus inse. Incavatus inse, a soul turned in on itself. He says, a damn soul is nearly nothing. It is shrunk, shut up in itself. Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat upon the ears of the deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes fast shut. First they will not, and in the end they cannot open their hands for gifts, or their mouths for food, or their eyes to see. Wow, their hands for gifts. I mean, that's what Sarah Smith was offering the dwarf gifts, essentially, gifts of grace to help him on a journey. And he was so turned within himself, he couldn't even see it as a gift. He saw it as manipulative and vindictive, and of course you would think that way, and self-centered. I mean, that was insane. And that speaks to the degradation of sin, that when we start to sin, we start to lose our capacity to recognize good and evil. If you're living a life mired by sin, your ability to be able to see goodness is often compromised. And we actually even see this. All you have to do is look in the news and look at some of the things that people are willing to celebrate. Horrendous. Yeah, it's pretty unreal. Now, since the problem is size, Jack actually asks whether or not the spirits could make themselves smaller so they could actually fit into hell, kind of like Alice in Wonderland when she drinks a potion. And MacDonald says there's only one, the greatest of all, God, who could make himself small enough to enter hell. And he references the harrowing of Hades when Jesus descended to the dead and, as 1 Peter 3 puts it, preached to the spirits in prison. The chapter wraps up with, a, rather admittedly, a heady conversation about time and choice. Uh, we're going to be digging into this more in the next chapter. I think the images there are a little clearer. But Lewis comments that MacDonald, in his life, he was often thought of as a universalist. And he comments that even St. Paul sometimes wrote some things that could be interpreted as meaning that everybody would be saved. And MacDonald basically says that Jack isn't going to understand this, at least in the terms that he wants to use, this question of predestination and free will. Because on the one hand, if you're within time, our choices are always before us, you know, whether we're going to choose heaven or hell. However, if you try and look at the question from eternity, all possibilities are gone. He speaks of time as a lens through which we see. And he says that every attempt to see the shape of eternity, except through the lens of time, destroys your knowledge of freedom. There's a, a paradox going on here. And that's where the chapter ends. And in the next chapter, we're going to dig a little deeper into this idea of time and choice. And Lewis is going to offer us a plot twist worthy of Matt's friend, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> one of my friends here in New York is close friends with an author who's written probably one of the more preeminent books on that we don't have free will. Mm -hmm. and what that means, and how we can still be morally culpable. And uh, anyways, I have to grab dinner with them at some point, and I'm vastly underprepared for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, I need to start. This Lewis actually might help me with it, and then go read some stuff, but I need to learn more about free will and predestination and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm just going to kind of tap out of that conversation. In this chapter, McDonald says that, this stuff can't be understood by mortal ears. And I'm kind of with him, because as soon as you look at things through time and then you try and look at things through eternity uh my brain breaks so your brain can break actually there's a limit to david's brain oh absolutely absolutely okay. but my brain was in tip-top condition when i wrote today's haikus well bring them on and actually i'll be the judge of that the first one is the tragedian when the real self leaves and all that is left is false we will be nothing Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, That is a good one. <laughs> I wrote a couple for the great lady. 
Do not use pity. It should not be a weapon holding joy hostage. That's a good one too. A time will soon come when misery has no hold or can infect joy. Mm. A lot of truth in these. And the last one was MacDonald. One who chooses hell, deaf to God's call, blind to light, a soul shriveled up. Ooh, David. Told you. Good ones this week. <laughs> that McDonald one, that's, that sums up the chapter. One who chooses hell, deaf to God's call, blind to light, a soul shriveled up. You just wrote the haiku version of Incavante Sense Inse. Oh, I should include that in a haiku. All right, that's going to be my challenge for next chapter, because next chapter is the final one. Oh, yeah, wow. And we'll be back next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. And it's going to be incredible. Cheers. Cheers. I would drink to that. <laughs>